Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. One of the countries I've visited most often over the last 15 years is Turkey. But on all my visits, one thing that's remained the same is the country's leader, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. He was elected Prime Minister in 2003 as head of the AK party, became president in 2014 and survived a coup attempt in 2016, and then became executive president and even more powerful in 2018. So how has Erdogan's leadership shaped the country and the region, and what will his legacy be? On July the 24th, President Erdogan led the prayers in one of the most historic buildings in the world, the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. Built in 537 as the Cathedral of Constantinople, it was the largest Christian church of the Byzantine Empire. In 1453, after the fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Empire, it was converted into a mosque. Half a millennium later, in 1934, the secular Turkish Republic, led by Kemal Ataturk, established it as a museum. But now President Erdogan's turned the Hagia Sophia back into a mosque. For devout Muslims, Islamists and many Turkish nationalists, the reconversion of the Hagia Sophia was a moment of great joy. But the decision was also greeted with criticism around the world, including from the State Department in Washington, from the Russian Orthodox Church in Moscow, and here's the Greek Prime Minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, giving voice to his disapproval. Mr Mitsotakis said the Turkish move was a sign of weakness, but that it would not have the power to dim what he called the brightness of a monument that's part of the world's cultural heritage. President Erdogan's controversial move comes at a difficult time for Turkey. The country relies heavily on tourism, which has been hammered by the coronavirus. The Turkish currency, the lira, is falling. Turkish troops are also involved in two armed conflicts in Syria and Libya and the country's playing host to four million Syrian refugees. Meanwhile at home, President Erdogan's widely criticised for his increasingly authoritarian style of government. To make sense of all this, I consulted an old friend in Turkey, Sinan Ugan, who's chairman of a Turkish think tank, the Centre for Economics and Foreign Policy Studies, known as EDAM. I started by asking Sinan why President Erdogan has made his move on the Hagia Sophia. This decision was a dream of the you know, political Islamists. And at some point, we believed that Erdogan would deliver on it. But we also believed that it would happen closer to elections, because the idea behind that was to galvanize support from his core constituency. So the interesting thing in many ways is uh, why it happened in the middle of 2020 when we're still three years away from elections. And what's your answer to that? 
And my answer to that is something that I'm sure we'll discuss a bit more as well, is that this was a measure uh, designed to combat the dwindling popularity of the government at a time of economic duress. I think the calculation in Ankara is that six to nine months going forward will be difficult for Turkey, firstly on account of existing structural imbalances, but obviously on account of the shock triggered by the pandemic. And therefore, Erdogan and the government has to design and launch a number of political measures to consolidate support as the economy is starting to hurt. And then I think the calculation is that after these difficult six to nine months, Turkey will rebound with the rest of the world, and therefore politically it will be an easier environment. And does Erdogan in doing this, is he in a sense seeking to overturn the secular legacy of Ataturk? When when we look really at the reaction within Turkey to this decision, I think that it would be wrong to construe it as such. There are certainly other areas where violation of uh, secular rule has been more important. Here, many people in Turkey, with the exception perhaps of a minority, didn't really consider this as a big affront to secularism. Also because the government took care in declaring both at home and abroad that Ayasofya would continue to serve as a cultural monument that would be open to everybody. And yet the reaction overseas has been fairly hostile, or at least in some quarters, so that the Russian Orthodox Church, and I think the relationship with Putin is a very important but tricky one, they have come out and condemned this. And I think you know the Greeks, perhaps predictably, but even the State Department in America don't seem to be happy. Yes, that's true, and that's somewhat to be expected. But I think going forward, it's not going to be a big issue, really. Right. More broadly, though, how do you interpret Erdogan's international position at the moment? In some ways, he's a leader who has the strength of having been there a very long time. He's a survivor. He's a big international figure. But looking at Turkey's relationships with its most important neighbors and partners, it's hard to think of one that's going particularly well. True. And when I look at Turkish foreign policy under Erdogan, at least for the past five years, the big handicap that I see is that in the wake of the political alliance with the uh, hyper-nationalist MHP, foreign policy has come to be affected by the consequences of this alliance as well which essentially drove foreign policy making in a direction that has become much more focused on the presidency and the presidential staff and really away from the institutional underpinnings of Turkish foreign policy, which traditionally was represented by the foreign policy establishment and the foreign service, the foreign ministry. And as a result, In many areas, whether it's in East Med, Libya, Syria, Iraq, relations with U.S., relations with Europe, there are many problems which are not resolved. So Turkey keeps accumulating tension in its foreign policy without demonstrating the ability to overcome or to resolve them. And that's the big problem that I see with Turkish foreign policy. And yet, I suppose, on the strictly military front, Turkey can say that it's enjoyed some successes, I mean, particularly in Libya, where they seem to have turned the tide in the war 
against quite formidable opponents. Surely, and that is uh, absolutely true. But again, the risk there is that this perhaps proclivity to use hard power has yielded benefits. But at some point, Turkey has to be smart enough to shift to diplomacy in order to consolidate the gains that it has been able to get as a result of these hard power tactics. And this is where so far we haven't seen this transition away from hard power towards smart diplomacy. Could you just give us a sense what you think the situation on the ground is in Syria and in Libya, particularly as it pertains to Turkish intervention and Turkish aims? Yeah, well, let's start with Syria. In Syria, because of essentially a lack of appetite from Turkey's traditional partners in the West, Turkey eventually had to cooperate with two unnatural partners like Russia and Iran, and particularly Russia, in order to at least stabilize the situation on the ground. But the situation remains critical in many ways, in particular in Idlib, which is a major issue for Turkey, given that already Turkey has close to 4 million Syrian refugees. The country seems to have reached its absorption capacity. So the priority is really to prevent uh, new refugee outflows. But Idlib is a pocket where this risk still exists. So Turkey is trying to work with Russia to stabilize the situation. What's the situation around Idlib? What's the balance of forces? Well, in Idlib, what we see is essentially the Syrian government wanting to extend its territorial cover over Idlib. Mm -hmm. And Turkish-aligned forces in Idlib are uh, resisting that. And Turkey is giving support to those forces for fear that a military campaign in Idlib could produce yet another wave of refugee outflows. Obviously, the government forces are backed by Russia and to some extent by Iran. That's the constellation of forces on the ground. Is there much current fighting? Right now, there's a lull, but there is an expectation that in a few weeks, fighting might resume. What we're seeing is a military buildup in Idlib, actually. And as for Libya, can you again explain the constellation of forces, the two sides and where Turkey fits into that? In Libya, Turkey has supported the UN-recognized legitimate government of Tripoli, led by Sarraj. In return, the opposition, uh, led by General Haftar, is supported by a number of different countries, which includes uh, neighboring Egypt, which includes Russia, but also the United Arab Emirates, and it's trying to prevent the outgrowth of Turkish influence in Northern Africa. Now, UAE is allied in this perspective with France, and uh, that's also why we see Paris becoming very critical about Turkish involvement in Northern Africa, in Libya, and in Eastern Mediterranean overall. Initially, Turkey invested militarily as a result of the agreement between Turkey and the Sarraj government for the delimitation of maritime uh, borders in Eastern Mediterranean. Turkey took this initiative in a way to break its diplomatic isolation in the eastern Mediterranean. And almost, I would say, as a kid pro quo, the Turkish government had to send in reinforcements and military support at the time when the Tripoli government was besieged by Haftar. And we're now talking about the early part of this year. Now, 
few months uh, thereafter, we can very clearly see that this military investment has paid off handsomely. And even I would argue in a way that may have even surprised Ankara when we look at how fast the Haftar coalition has unraveled, how quickly not only Tripoli was saved, but also the Saraj forces were able to regain ground. And now they are obviously very close to Sirte, a major critical point in Libya in opening the way to the oil crescent. So the Turkish military investment in Syria I would argue, has also copied the Russian blueprint to some extent in Syria, where Russia invested militarily in a smart way with strategic assets. And that's basically what Turkey did in Libya by lending strategic assets, armed drones, electronic warfare equipment, you know, a few Turkish military advisors, coupled with a number of proxy fighters that were shipped from Syria. You mentioned Russia. I'm particularly interested in that relationship because you talked about them in some senses sharing goals and stabilizing Syria. But on the other hand, they're backing different sides in both Libya and in Syria. And at times the relationship with Putin seemed good. At times it seemed very dangerous. How do you assess it? Absolutely. That's a very good way to frame it, actually. But Ultimately, I think both leaders value each other and they don't want to cross, you know, mutual red lines. So even if occasionally we see tactical disagreements on the ground, whether it has to do with Syria or with Libya, so far, Ankara and Moscow have demonstrated an ability to continue to work with each other diplomatically and to rely on each other to control different and opposing dynamics on the ground. That's been the case in Libya, that's been the case in Syria. Of course, with the difference that in Libya, Turkey is the major backer of the Saraj government, but Russia is only one of the backers of the Haftar opposition. So Russia's position in Libya in terms of how much it could really deliver is different than Syria because there are other stakeholders involved, particularly Egypt and the UAE. And how is Turkey relating currently to the West? Because I mean, I've just spent some time in France and I was struck by how much space Erdogan is getting in the French papers as this dangerous guy who's challenged France and the Eastern Mediterranean. They're worked up about the Hagia Sophia and so on. Which, you know, when you look back to how Erdogan started, he was regarded as a pro-European figure, pro-Western figure. True. I mean, France is a bit of an exceptional case because now of the, you know, current acrimony between Macron and Erdogan himself. But overall, the relationship with Europe has certainly been downgraded, especially compared to the initial years of the AK Party years when indeed the AK Party government was viewed in many corners in Europe as a reformist government. But over the years, we have seen a direction of travel that was not particularly reflective of that understanding. And when we look at the current situation today in Turkey, it is true that there are certainly many deficits in terms of democratic rule, freedom of expression, which makes the relationship with Europe even more difficult. But obviously, Turkey remains a critical country for Europe. So there's an understanding that for strategic reasons, there must be a collaborative relationship with Turkey, 
We see this particularly in the area of the refugees, where there is an agreement between Turkey and Europe. But the big missing element and the dynamic in this relationship is that even though there is a tacit agreement that the core framework for this relationship, which was accession, has now stalled and may not be revitalized anytime in the near future, there is really a lack of an alternative framework for some, I would say a complementary framework, that would still allow the two sides to start to work on mutually beneficial areas. For instance, and this would sound, uh, I think, very close to the UK establishment, Turkey is also in need of a new trade arrangement. The customs union that was concluded in 95 is by now a very old agreement. It needs to be modernized. But that path is blocked for political reasons. Turkey is one of the very few countries in Europe that does not benefit from visa liberalization. That path is also blocked. So there is now very little positive momentum in the Turkey-EU relationship, except the refugee area where the power relationship is to Turkey's benefit. So, I mean, all in all, it looks like Erdogan is, albeit with complications, a fairly successful player on the international stage, playing a difficult hand quite skillfully. But does he have the sort of economic security at home to sustain all these international commitments? Or is there a danger of him being undermined by the weak economy? And we saw a run on the lira just last week. Yes, that's the big vulnerability, actually. What we've seen in recent years in terms of economic performance Again, I would refer also to the fact of the transition to a presidential system, which has weakened institutional rule in Turkey, is really a a sort of Erdoganomics doctrine, which essentially rests on an ambition to revitalize the economy through fiscal and monetary stimulus. And this is what the government has been doing. But this policy has reached its limits. We see this in the growing risk of the Turkish economy with, you know, Turkish credit default swaps rates now the fourth highest in the world. We see this in the pressure on the domestic lira because of an indication of this lack of confidence. And this is creating even more risk going forward. That's where we are today. So to conclude, obviously, it's very hard to predict the future. But let's look back then. How do you see the evolution of Erdogan, who clearly aspires to be a historic figure in in Turkey, to rival maybe even Ataturk? Can one yet make sense of his trajectory? He came in, I think, in 2003. He's still here 17 years later. How has the Erdogan phenomenon evolved? Well, I mean, Erdogan has certainly been, you know, a historic figure and he would have a, you know, a big legacy. Of course, many of us hope that, you know, he would use the power that he consolidated to transform Turkey in a way that is more compatible with a liberal democracy. Erdogan's dream to make Turkey great again, in a way, has certainly been one of the characteristics of his rule. And as we've discussed, this has brought Turkey at a higher level in the international agenda. Turkey has become a country that looks across its borders, that wields influence across the borders. So in many ways, it's a different country today. 
But ultimately, I think I would judge his performance based on to what extent Turkey has been able to approach the norms of liberal democracy. And that is where the record is rather mitigated, to say the least. That was Sinan Ilgan, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. If you'd like some inspiration about what to read this summer, I invite you to take a look at the FT's annual summer book series, where our writers and critics have chosen their favourites of 2020 so far. Find over 200 possible books to add to your summer reading list at ft.com slash summerbooks2020. And please join us again next week. You can find us in all the usual podcast apps. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.